Welcome back to the Florida History Podcast. I'm Carter Krishnire. And I'm Robert Bocciolato. Robert, so much happening around us in the world. I want to mention this is the third time we've had to interrupt normal service, regular service with this podcast to talk about current events in a historical context. We are going to talk about or, or replay part, a part of our episode on the 1964 St. Augustine movement and, and how that led to the Civil Rights Act of 1964 and Martin Luther King later in the show. But first, we want to talk, give uh, about a 10-minute primer on the historical implications of what we're seeing in urban areas in the United States and talk a little bit about uh, the history of Miami, which saw the, probably the worst racial riots in the country uh, in between the, the, the assassination of uh, Martin Luther King and the 1992 Rodney King riots. The worst urban riots were in Miami. Um, Robert, just uh, historic uh, uh, history all around us. I want to make reference and point to a very disturbing tweet. There have been many disturbing tweets by President Trump during this last few days. But one of the most disturbing from my perspective, and I think people follow me on Twitter, saw me go wild and and uh, cool tweeted three times with uh, angry analysis was his mentioning of General Douglas MacArthur in contrasting General MacArthur to the mayor of Minneapolis. And, and by the way, Trump never mentions Eisenhower in tweets when he talks about generals. He never mentions Pershing in tweets. He never talks about George Marshall, in my mind, maybe the greatest American of the 20th century or greatest American statesman of the 20th century. He never talks about these people who were generals who won wars. He talks about Douglas MacArthur and Patton all the time. And MacArthur, to me, specifically hit at me because MacArthur, one of his great legacies was his crushing of the Bonus Army in 1932 under the direction of President Herbert Hoover. And those were... War veterans who had not, who their obligations had not been met by the U.S. government, and it was the Great Depression, and they were desperate. And Trump paid homage to Douglas MacArthur at this time, and uh, he echoed a little bit of Herbert Hoover. What happened to Herbert Hoover in 1932, Robert? Well, and, you know, uh, <laughs> keep in mind, um, we're going to do our best to try and pull back from history to sort of give you guys um, some historical context about what's going on currently to what happened in the past. Um, however, I think we're beginning to get into a, a situation where uh, we may not have any historical context to meet it. It may, uh, I think we're on like the fourth day now of all of this, and it just seems to be escalating and escalating. But um, in terms of uh, what happened with Hoover, Hoover and what's now happening with President Trump, there's a lot of very strange similarities because there was this huge, huge demonstration and protest, and they were basically... Um, all these veterans were sort of camped out um, in these little Hoover tents, and they were, you know, right on the National Mall. There were some in the by the White House, and um, they got broken up, like you said, by uh, Douglas McCarthy. And as a result, uh, this was also during a election, um, and it was starting to be a pretty tumultuous election between uh, Hoover and FDR. And uh, famously, FDR, when he saw all of these sort of shanty towns on fire and, you know, people being dragged out, some people died, uh, he said, this elects me. And I, I don't 
really see us there yet, but um, definitely some some troubling historical waters that the president's going to have to navigate through heading um, into November with all of this going on. So let's turn the page to Florida and one of the most famous uh, urban riots in American history, uh, certainly the most famous in Florida's history, are the 1989 riots, which were race riots that started, uh, it was this month, it was May, uh, we're, we're going to release this uh, uh, June 1st, but uh, in May of uh, 1980, uh, it was in response to the acquittal of uh, Dade County officers uh, who had been uh, culpable in the death of uh, Arthur McDuffie. Uh, who was a former Marine, was a black salesman who was just riding home on his motorbike and they, uh, and got killed after a high speed chase. Uh, it was, I think, very much the defining event of the 1980s in South Florida. Were, were these riots, uh, there, it, 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 it began as a peaceful protest, uh, about, uh, I would say like 7,500 people, uh, attended a pre protest, uh, in, uh, in downtown Miami uh, that day in May, and then it turned into a race riot. And uh, very quickly, Governor Bob Graham reacted. He sent National Guard troops into the area, uh, but uh, the riot lasted uh, three or four days. There were all, uh, particularly in the Overtown and Liberty City sections of Miami, there was also some violence in uh, Coconut Grove. Uh, people may not realize there was an actually a pretty substantial uh, African-American neighborhood of, of the famous Coconut Grove area of Miami. And uh, actually, the first residents of Miami were Bahamian immigrants who were of African uh, uh, lineage uh, that lived in that area in the 1800s. Uh, so the, the um, riots spread to there. And um, in, in fact, there were um, sympathy protests in other parts of the country also that took place that didn't turn violent, but they were uh, they were protests. Well, um, interestingly enough, uh, this was uh, a real turning point for Governor Graham because uh, for the first two years of his term, he was uh, a pretty much, uh, I'd say, a, a New Deal Democrat in a way. He was of that mold. He was uh, pushing a very liberal um, economic agenda. But what a lot of people don't know about him and what really started to come out um, with all of this was the fact that he was a very uh, big uh, proponent of law and order. There's, you know, there's a, a whole lot of law and order Democrats that sort of spring up in the South at this time. And he was one of those. And um Oddly enough, there were demonstrations uh, at the governor's mansion, and oddly and oddly enough, uh, his one of his predecessors, Leroy Collins, was actually there protesting. Um, it was his next door neighbor, but uh, it was uh, it was a real turning point for him. I think he got uh, a lot more hard line after that when it came to law and order. Um, he was always very pro death penalty, which was another thing that uh, Leroy Collins would protest against him. Uh, but but this was a real sign that um, in this area of public life. He was very, very concerned with maintaining order, and uh, he he acted very swiftly. Then, uh, throughout the 1980s, Miami became a flashpoint because of the large Latino population and this 
sort of racial tension that developed between Latinos and African-Americans. And, and I say African-Americans, a lot of them, when we talk about South Florida, and, and I live in South Florida, and, and Robert, you're originally from here, the term black is used often because it, there's a, a number of people from the Caribbean. So I yeah. use the term African-American, but I'm including uh, in that Jamaicans, Haitian-Americans, Trinidadian-Americans. 1982, there was an accidental shooting of a man uh, at a video arcade. The man shot was African-American, uh, the, the cop that shot him was, was, was Latin and, uh, it turned into this horrible race riot that then finally was contained. But at that point, African American anger turned from against white America as it had been in the, in the famous, uh, riots after Martin Luther King's assassination, the Watts riot in 65, the 1980, uh, McDuffie riots in Miami to, uh, anger at Latinos. That continues in 1989, right? I remember very well as a, as a young person, uh, it, it, after, uh, uh, William Lozano, uh, another, uh, Latino officer, my, uh, Miami officer shot, uh, uh, Clement Lloyd, an African American who was fleeing another officer on a motorbike. Uh, Lloyd, uh, gets shot. And when he gets shot, he crashes, and his passenger on the motorbike was also killed. So there were two two deaths there. The rioting in Overtown, I want to say, took place for five days after that. It included uh, people getting attacked on their way to a Miami Heat basketball game. Uh, there was rioting in Liberty City, which is a little further north, and uh, some really bad rioting again in the Coconut Grove section of Miami. Uh, 1990 and 1991, there were race riots again in Miami. Uh, 1990 in Wynwood, which is now... Uh, trendy area, but at the time was, and Ringwood's a great example of all over the country, we've had this kind of regentrification and, and urban blight, blighted urban areas become kind of trendy, artsy areas. Winwood is a great example of that. Uh, but riots in Winwood in 90 and riots in 91 after another police shooting in, uh, Liberty City and Overtown and to a lesser extent in Coconut Grove. So Miami in the 1980s and early 1990s, a racial flashpoint nationally, Robert. Um, when you look at the, uh, the police victim, there's a lot of parallels between this individual and, uh, the African American who was killed by police officers during the, uh, 1996 St. Petersburg, uh, riots. Both of these men, uh, they were relatively the same age, same build, same race. Uh, they were both, um, detained or attempted to be detained by police officers due to the assumption of a crime. Um, and in both cases, the details of that crime were very late in coming. And so there was a lot of animosity towards the, the cops and a lot of supporters of law and order and policemen could point to this possible crime as reasoning for why the person was pulled over and then subsequently killed. Um, in that case, where keep in mind, we still don't know all the details yet about this individual um, in uh, Minnesota. Apparently it was a, a, a forged check. We don't know. Um, but this individual, he was um, caught driving a stolen car, and it was revealed later on that um, it was not actually stolen. It was purchased by him, but um, he purchased it uh, through a trade-off of the car for crack cocaine. 
And uh, the person, once they got the crack cocaine, they reported it stolen. And so that's how he, he got arrested and then, and then ultimately lost his life. Yeah, the 1996 uh, St. Petersburg riots, uh, I remember well because uh, we were actually going to have a vice presidential debate there. Uh, and, uh, and it happened right, it happened right in the middle of the presidential election between Bill Clinton and Bob Dole. And what ended up happening is there were two nights of rioting in October. It gets contained. And then the officer doesn't get indicted. Let's not forget that. And then there's more rioting for several days. Yeah, sec- a second wave. Yes. Yeah, yeah, which is very possible in all these cases. So good luck to everyone out there. And, uh-huh. and, and, and if you are protesting, and I know a number of you that, that listen to us and read uh-huh. uh, the FloridaSqueeze.com website are protesting. So just please do it in, in, in a safe manner and uh, get your point across in the safest possible uh-huh. manner. Um, real quick, I, I just want to state um, two friends of mine were protesting today and uh, yesterday in Tallahassee and a truck um, ran into them. They're fine, but it's, it's important to realize that, um, people are protesting, people are hurt, people are frustrated. And if you don't agree with them, that's your choice. If you're protesting or if you're anti-protesting, it's never a good idea to assault people, to attack people, or to destroy somebody else's property. When Martin Luther King was being attacked by dogs, he told his protesters not to fight back. There's such a thing as peaceful, non-cooperative protesting. And it is the, the pain and the burden of the protester to receive blows, but not to give them. And trust that the people who are oppressing you through your grace can see the error of their ways. It's been proven time and time and time again in history. When it comes to injustice, both of these hosts right here will always be on the side of the justice side of the, of the coin. But when it comes to destroying, vandalizing, I think you'd be pretty hard to find anybody that would be supportive of that. Very well said, Robert, and, and I uh, want to associate myself uh, fully with your comments, and I completely agree. Thank you. And with that, let's play our uh, previous podcast on Martin Luther King. Speaking of nonviolent protests and, and being roughed up in a nonviolent protest, Martin Luther King's incredible work in St. Augustine in 1964, which ha- helped lead to the ninth passage of the 1964 Civil Rights Act, which was signed by President Lyndon Johnson. Martin Luther King's involvement here in the state of Florida and the pivotal role that St. Augustine movement played and, and Dr. King being here in the state of Florida with other civil rights leaders like Andrew Young and, and Ralph Abernathy in passing the Civil Rights Act of 1964 through Congress, breaking the, the Senate filibuster, the Southern Senator filibuster, and passing civil rights laws. Actually, something that is not always talked about. You see lots of movies, documentaries about Lyndon Johnson, Martin Luther King, Civil Rights Act of 1964, the debate in Congress, etc. All the way comes to mind the recent uh, HBO film, Brian Cranston playing LBJ. You don't always get the context of what was going on at the time in the movement 
So we're going to focus on that today uh, as part of the celebration of Martin Luther King Jr.'s birthday. Most of the discussion of the civil rights movement, and probably for good reason, is around states like Mississippi and Alabama, Georgia, the violence that was happening there, the movements that were happening there. But actually, at the time of the passage, the great debate and passage of the civil rights movement of 1964, the greatest activity in the civil rights movement was taking place here in Florida, in St. Augustine. The father of the St. Augustine movement was a gentleman by the name of Dr. Robert Haling, who was from Tallahassee, was a graduate of Florida A&M University. Uh, he actually had just passed away a few years ago uh, in Fort Lauderdale. Uh, but he was uh, he moved to St. Augustine in 1960. He was a dentist uh, and was a uh, academic as well. And he uh, began a movement in St. Augustine. The, the idea Haling had was to protest the St. Augustine is the oldest European settlement in the United States, or what is uh, currently the United States. Haling knew that the 400th anniversary of St. Augustine's founding was coming up in 1965. Uh, Pedro Menendez founded the city in 1565, as I think most of our listeners know. So the goal of the movement was to draw attention to St. Augustine and the segregation in the Deep South, in Florida, in St. Augustine, in time for that 400th anniversary, the beginning of uh, the 400th anniversary. And in fact, uh, had some success, had Lyndon Johnson come and speak uh, and demand an integrated ballroom at a segregated hotel, the Ponce de Leon Hotel. But that uh, speech by LBJ in 1963, when he was still vice president, uh, had little impact. It's integrated the, uh, the ballroom, integrated the event for a night. And St. Augustine returned to its ways and the ways of Florida at the time when the vice president left and went back uh, to Washington. So enter Martin Luther King. Haling met the Reverend Martin Luther King Jr. at uh, a conference in Orlando, and he invited King to St. Augustine in the spring of 1964. And St. Augustine then became ground zero for the fight over the civil rights movement. As the battle was raging in the U.S. Senate, the filibuster of the Southern members of uh, the, the U.S. Senate, which included Florida's two U.S. Senators, Spessard Holland and George Smathers, as they were filibustering the civil rights law, ground zero for civil disobedience. And the Reverend Martin Luther King, who had given less than a year earlier uh, that great I Have a Dream speech in the March on Washington, was here in the state of Florida in St. Augustine. In 1963, there had been a sit-in protest like there had been in so many other places, including Tallahassee, including famously Greensboro, North Carolina, a sit-in protest at a Woolworths lunch counter. It ended in the arrest and imprisonment of 16 young black protesters and seven juveniles. Uh, Four of the children, four of the African-American children, 16-year-old girls, and two of them were sent to reform school. Uh, Unbelievable. Uh, And... Even uh, uh, Jackie Robinson spoke out, and the NAACP spoke out, and Northern Newspapers spoke out. So St. Augustine was already establishing itself as a center, an epicenter of white racism and white resistance to the civil rights movement, maybe not quite as colorfully as Selma, Alabama, and Birmingham, and Montgomery, and and, and some of the uh, uh, places, Philadelphia, Mississippi, would in in the future, 
but certainly on the front lines and certainly uh, in terms of Florida giving the state a black eye, a state that depended heavily on tourism a lot more than Alabama, Georgia, Mississippi, South Carolina did, on tourism of people from the north and foreign visitors to the state, really giving the state an awful reputation. So St. Augustine, ground zero. We're in the spring of 1964. Let's talk a little bit about Martin Luther King's road forward in the St. Augustine movement. Local activists led by Haling uh, decided to contact Martin Luther King and the Southern Christian Leadership Conference for help. Uh, St. Augustine was being overrun by Klansmen in late 1963 and early 1964. In the spring of 64, Haling put out a call to Northern College students to come to St. Augustine for spring break, uh, but uh, not to go to the beach like they would in Daytona or Fort Lauderdale, really, was a big spring break destination in in the uh, 1960s, immortalized in the movie Where the Boys Are. But to come to work to be activists in the civil rights movement, to take part in civil rights uh, activities. And this included several people who were connected to prominent businessmen in the North, prominent politically connected families. So this brought international attention to St. Augustine, or more international attention to St. Augustine, another black eye for the state of Florida, who under the governorship of Ferris Bryant were fighting the Civil Rights Act. The implement, uh, and the implementation, Ferris Bryant had spoken in front of the Senate Commerce Committee in hearings about the bill, and as I mentioned earlier, Florida's two U.S. senators had joined in the filibuster against the bill. And in the uh, U.S. House, I should mention, Florida uh, at the time had uh, 12 members of uh, the uh, U.S. House. 11 of them had voted against the Civil Rights Act. The lone yes vote was unsurprisingly from Claude Pepper, who um, we've talked about on a previous episode of the show, great champion of liberalism, uh, New Deal liberalism. And he was representing Miami, which was like a northern city at that point. Uh, And you even see throughout the 60s, Miami's voting patterns were more like that of New York City or Boston or Philadelphia than like other southern cities, even unlike southern cities like Atlanta and Nashville uh, that were tended to be ahead of uh, more urban and more cosmopolitan than the rest of the South. So during these protests in St. Augustine, attempts were made to integrate the beaches uh, on Anastasia Island, St. Augustine Beach. Uh, Demonstrators were beaten and driven into the water by segregationists. Uh, Some of the protesters couldn't actually swim and uh, were almost drowned, and they were saved by other demonstrators. But there was no effort by law enforcement or by the local community to rescue them. So... Dr. King, by this point, is in St. Augustine. In addition to, to Abernathy and Andrew Young and some of the others, Fred Shuttlesworth, some of the other great SCLC leaders uh, are in St. Augustine at this point. So uh, while there is a drama going on in the Capitol over Lyndon Johnson's civil rights bill, which is being filibustered, and Johnson is feverishly, and again, if you've watched some of these uh, programs like All the Way and other documentaries or movies, documentaries about Lyndon Johnson and about Martin Luther King, you know how feverishly he was twisted arms to get that filibuster broken, but it took two months, and how hard Hubert Humphrey uh, was was working, uh, the senator from Minnesota, the great senator from Minnesota, who would be the vice president to Lyndon Johnson, and, and, and who, who would run as, be his running man in the 64 election, how hard they were working to break uh, the deadlock. Meanwhile, you have this uh, situation in uh, St. Augustine. There can be no doubt that what 
viewers saw in St. Augustine on their televisions, on the nightly news. And remember, in those days, you didn't have CNN and Fox News and MSNBC. You had the nightly news broadcasts on ABC, NBC, and CBS. You had Walter Cronkite or David Brinkley or Chet Huntley coming into your home every night. What happened during that period is people from around the country saw what was going on in St. Augustine, and they called their senators, and they flooded their senators with mail to the point where finally, on June 10th, their, the filibuster was finally broken in the U.S. Senate. Finally. And 71 votes for cloture, they go on to pass the Civil Rights Act through the Senate. Dr. King is still in St. Augustine at this point. I think it's very important for us who, who uh, studied Florida history to understand that doc, Dr. Martin Luther King was actually in the state of Florida when the filibuster was broken. Closure was achieved on the 1964 Civil Rights Act. He gets arrested the next day, June 11th, on the steps of the Monsoon Mortar Lodge restaurant. That is when he famously wrote... His letter from St. Augustine Jail to a friend of his, Rabbi Israel Dresner from New Jersey. He urged Rabbi Dresner to recruit rabbis to come to St. Augustine and take part in the movement. The arrest, the result of that was the arrest of 18 rabbis who, who heard the call from Dr. King and Rabbi Dresner and came to St. Augustine to try and integrate the motel, integrate the swimming pool in the motel. It was the largest, and it still is the largest, mass arrest of rabbis in American history. The rabbis, after they were thrown in jail in St. Augustine, also published an an open letter, a manifesto titled, Why We Came, or Why We Went, and that uh, moved lots of people uh, around the country. Things came to a head when a group of black and white protesters jumped into a swimming pool at the motor lodge, at the Monsoon Monsoon Motor Lodge. Uh, In response to the protest, the manager of the hotel, uh, uh, who was actually the president of the Florida Hotel and Motel Association, uh, poured some sort of chemical substance, some sort of uh, acid into the pool to try and injure, you know, physically injure or or, or, uh, burn the protesters. Uh, Photographs of this went around the world, again, on those nightly news broadcasts, international news, causing great embarrassment to the United States. Again, this is the middle of the Cold War. Uh, Castro has just come to power in Cuba a few years earlier. Very, very embarrassing. We're we're about to deepen our commitment in Vietnam. This is uh, about a month and a half before uh, the Gulf of Tonkin resolution passed. So just think about the world as it is and how embarrassing this was to the U.S.'s moral authority and moral credibility. So at that point, um, Ferris Bryant, the governor, Governor, anti-civil rights, he finally realizes this is just impacting the reputation and image of Florida beyond repair, forms a, uh, a, a committee, which was biracial, uh, to, uh, to uh, try and resolve the dispute. Uh, Dr. King, Abernathy, Andrew Young, Williams, uh, uh, Shuttlesworth, the rest of them all leave St. Augustine in the next few days. St. Augustine made a big difference in, in the civil rights movement, in, in uh, pushing what was an important change here in the state of Florida and bringing light 
to the darkness of Florida's racial practices at the time and had a huge impact on national legislation and the civil rights law. So thanks once again for listening to the Florida History Podcast. We will be back with another new episode next week. Uh, Robert will be back and we'll be talking about a golden age in Florida history just a few years after this very lamentable period uh, when uh, Florida was rightly embarrassed for its racial practices when one Ruben Askew became the governor of the state in the 1970s.